to No Pressure to Be Funny, uh, created by Alistair Barry and Nick Revel, and podcasting on the British Comedy Guide, presented by me, James O'Brien. For the last time, actually, before I'm replaced by 26 million foreigners. Uh, <laughs> we're coming to you, as usual, from the Phoenix in Cavendish Square, and before we start, I just need to sound check the microphones, if you'll bear with me. <coughs> rhubarb, 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 Jamaica in. Rhubarb, <laughs> rhubarb, Daphne du Maurier. Yep, that seems to be working fine. Our musical guest is, I have to say it, because you'll tell from the accent, he's a Liverpool fan. Hasn't had the best day so far. So, uh, so, well, so please do your very best to offer an extremely warm welcome to Mr. Steve Gribbin. Hello. Thanks very much. My name's Steve. Uh, this, uh, this is a song uh, concerning the discovery in my hometown of Liverpool of uh, a breed of rats who are two foot long. And uh, you might be more familiar if you've seen them in the papers, uh, especially the Mirror and the Sun. Uh, you might be familiar with their more Latin name, which is Tabloidus Panicus Bollocus. <laughs> uh, so, uh, this can't be, uh, you know, uh, I, I actually thought it was another in a long line of demonisation of Scousers, you know, I can imagine they're going to be denounced in the Daily Mail for being addicted to a diet of takeaways, fizzy drinks and cable. But, uh, of course, they are officially classed as vermin, rats, although you would never actually have a rat working as a journalist for the sun. <laughs> so, uh, this is a scary song concerning the invasion of the super rat, and I'd like to dedicate this one to Jose Mourinho. <laughs> Uh, Chelsea, of course, the people's team, uh, the people being fat, rich, hedge fund managing bankers. So here we go. This one's called Super Rat. Here we go. Are you ready to be scared? Yeah. Looks like a mouse, he's big as a house, he takes no crap because he's a scouse. Who are you looking at? He's a super rat. Munching McDonald's to my surprise I looked in his eyes, he said I'm super size I didn't stop for a chat He's a super rat You better beware, they're everywhere Some are more aggressive than a grizzly bear They've been seen from Stoke-on-Trent down to Stafford you Know what they say about rats They always leave a sinking ship That's why thousands of them have been seen running from Old Trafford Suck it up They carry vile disease, which makes you sneeze, gives you renal failure when your kidneys seize. He's dissected my cat. He's a super rat. They're immune to poison shocks. They can even read the instructions on the box. He's got 7,000 brats. He's a super rat. They're fatter than geese because of all the grease from all the fast food that makes them obese and the fizzy drinks that keeping them all hyper. As the council shuts, they're going nuts. Call they can offer, cause of government cuts. Is a private contractor calling himself the Pie Piper. So just have a care or they'll be in your hair. Cause they can jump over 8,000 feet in the air. They are an acrobat. He's a super rat. They're cunning and evil, they take us for fools They're even trying to take over our secondary schools They've been cheated on sats He's a super rat He's worse than a vampire bat He's a super rat 
I wouldn't give him a pat Cause he's super rat I'm running out of rhymes for rats He's a super rat Steve Gribbin, ladies and gentlemen. Steve Gribbin. Now, please uh, keep your hands together and join me in welcoming to the stage your panel for this week's show. Matt Ford, Chris Neal, Don Biswas and Daphna Barham. Daphna Barham is a comedian and journalist described by one anti-Semitism monitoring website as Israel-hating. She also served in the Israeli army for two years, thus providing the usual level of clarity we've come to expect around Middle Eastern issues. Uh, Matt Ford is a comedian and broadcaster whose website features a picture of him in his boxer shorts, which is one of the main reasons we're delighted this is only a podcast. Uh, and no pressure to be funny regular, Chris Neal is a comedian, producer and writer who was described recently by Attitude magazine as a raconteur, wit and general old cow. So, a bit like Katie Hopkins, except a raconteur and a wit. <laughs> Don Biswas is a rising star of the comedy circuit where his frank and hilarious take on living with dyspraxia and mild Asperger's syndrome mean that he's far more balanced than most of the other people on the circuit. Ladies and gentlemen, your panel. Before, before we hear from them, I'd like you to join me in inviting... That's all I'm saying so far tonight, isn't it? Join me in inviting... Here's Alistair Barry with something that we like to call the devil's advocate. advocate this week, uh, this month even, the devil's advocate believes it's time we started to appreciate the royal family's role in journalistic job creation. It's not easy being a journalist. Even if you've got a story to write, you need your editor to give you some money to give to a policeman, even though he doesn't believe he's a policeman, <laughs> thanks to your outlandish description of him as a policeman. Often it must be difficult to know what to write about. The French poet Malame spoke of writer's block as the empty paper defended by its whiteness, which is also an excellent description of the Daily Mail. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to the royal trip down under, male journalists have had plenty to write about recently, which has in turn made writing jokes redundant. I can just quote from the website. Did you know the body language between the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge signals their love? <laughs> or that their hands-on relationship sends strong guarding signals. Personally, I'm just delighted the couple constantly maintain eye contact, <laughs> even if that strikes me as unwise behaviour for parents of a toddler. <laughs> Where the fuck's George? Oh, I'm so sorry, darling. I was constantly maintaining <laughs> eye contact. <laughs> it's OK, the nanny's got him. Let's go and rub noses with the Maori so that Nicholas Witchell can say something fatuous about it. <laughs> Nicholas Witchell is a man so craven in his awfulness that even his ginger hair has deserted him, which is... <laughs> <laughs> which is, believe me, a subject I know quite a bit about. <laughs> Last week, he informed us that Kate's body language has matured since she became a mother, when probably all she's doing is wondering who that ghastly man who keeps on hanging around the playground is. But even Nicholas Witchell needs a job, so I am delighted in these times of heightened austerity we can pay for a young couple to take their toddler on a jolly to the other side of the world in an attempt to make Australians proud to be British. 
Royalists often argue that the monarchy provide a boost to the economy, and here is proof. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have Nicholas Witchell or the Daily Mail, and Clive Goodman wouldn't have been able to go anywhere near Andy Coulson demanding money for his imaginary policeman. And where's the fun in that? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Alistair Barry, ladies and gentlemen. The, the architects of, of this evening's entertainment, Alistair and Nick, they very kindly sometimes put, put together a few pointers for me on where I might lead the debate, and, and then obviously I, I sort of throw it over to the panel. And Nick in particular often provides me with particularly pertinent briefing notes and, uh, and, and offers up lines of inquiry that are, well, unspeakably fertile. This, this month he's given me, why are they giving us all this pointless shite at the top of the news? Prince George, Man United, does anyone give a flying fuck? <laughs> Matt Ford. (laughs) (laughs) I give a fuck about Man United because their demise is something that I've dreamed of, fantasised about. I mean, watching Man United crumble in this way, I I remember the the general election in 1997 and watching this smug establishment erode in front of my eyes and watching Manchester United struggle and suffer and weep and bleed is satisfaction like I've not known in about 15 years. And it's relevant to people's lives because the royal thing is just a load of bullshit. But Manchester United have tyrannised this nation, have dominated it for far too long. And to see this... I mean, this is like like the Arab Spring. uh, (laughs) Uh, Chris Neal, you you write for the Sunday Express, so I'll lead you towards the royal story. Yeah, I did did pitch to the Sunday Express this week a column about how there was too much royal coverage. And the commissioning editor said, oh, yes, that sounds quite interesting, but I don't know if we can fit that in. We've got a 22-page pull-out. I don't think anyone's very interested. It's just the press. But they might, well, this well is, this the tragedy is that a lot of people are. Are they? Are they? Oh, yeah. a lot of people are. The, 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 the great tragedy of the royal family is why they're preserved for so long. Is that I can't. I despise yeah, them. There are large swathes of this country no, that bizarrely about are obsessed them going with. to Australia. Yeah, whatever they do, go to Australia, go to Stoke, stay in the house. Do you know what the mail ran with yesterday? The mail went very big with the fact that Prince William is now up to the last notch on his favourite belt. And they, they did this with phot- photographic comparisons. <laughs> Which way? The, 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 it's belts to... <laughs> it's got bigger. Has he put on shit loads of weight? No, he's got bigger, because it's from when he was a little boy, this belt, practically. He's got it's, one it's, belt. It's, well, yes. It's you got, say they spend money. He's the heir to the throne, it's, and you kind of go, oh, you can have any amount of our bloody cars. But it's got like some link to Africa. One belt. So he's... <laughs> He's on this We're one here. We're getting a demonstration here. Uh, this is just for James to take his trousers so off. That, that happens oh, every time. That notch there. So yeah. he's gone over there. A picture from 1999 when he was on that one there. The pen- this is going to be great on the podcast. When he was on the, the penultimate notch on yeah. his belt. And that is news. That, that, that is, and well, but, I think that is news that Prince William only has got one well, I'm belt. sure he's got more. <laughs> he's got, that really? wasn't the f- he's only got one belt. <laughs> that wasn't the point of the story. That, 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 that wasn't the point of the story. The point of the story was that even something as trivial as, as what notch on his belt is will engage. So when you say people are interested yes. in them, are they interested in them in a way that they're not interested in, in other celebrities like Miley Cyrus or live. David Dickinson? Yeah, they've been for years, just not in the men's size. I think that's quite refreshing. Maybe they're going feminist. I mean, I don't think it was Kate a diet so bloody thing. thin that there's no point in picking no, up on her. Yeah, you wouldn't want to measure her belt. But, do <laughs> it's, that, but I mean, it's, it's similar no. to it, well, it's the Miley Cyrus thing, the Katy Perry and Russell Band, yeah. and all that sort of thing, yeah. where people live vicariously through other people because their lives aren't as glamorous as the people that they uh, adore. Yes. The problem is with the royal family is that it goes beyond that. That people's fascination with the royal family actually allows them to uh, have an excuse for their own failure, which is to say the world is this way, and this is the tragedy of it. The world is this way. There are some people that just are going to be born into wealth and into power, and the rest of us, it's just not meant for us. So the royal family is a crutch for people to live vicariously through someone, and it's an 
excuse for their own personal failure. And that is the tragic reality of life in Britain. And yet, however bad... (laughs) (laughs) It's just the truth. No one really loves the Countess of Wessex much, do they? (laughs) (laughs) No, but this is why I think Matt is so animated, because it looked as if the the tide was going out, and now it's come washing back in at a rate of knots. Diana's death and that whole period where you had in the sort of mid-90s where there was, you know, the end of the Tory government, Euro 96 and all that, and and Britpop and everything, and it felt as if though young Britain had actually found a voice and that the establishment had been not overthrown but had been challenged, and when Diana died, there was a genuine sense that the royal family, for the first time, were not only out of step with British public opinion, but being openly challenged by other members of the establishment, that's to say Downing Street and the press, mm-hmm. and even the Sun and the Daily Mail. And actually what ended up happening was the establishment reinforced the royal family. Blair sent Campbell to help the royal family out. The Sun and the Mail and the Telegraph actually ended up standing full square behind them. But for a, for a chaotic five or six days, there was a moment where uh, faith in the royal family had been shaken, even within those that had always had faith in it. And since then, we have never had that opportunity back. It's like Manchester United season. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uh, let's move on now to the genuinely trivial stuff that's been in the news this month. Uh, Where, where, I wonder, does the panel think World War III is most likely to break out? We've got got Syria as your starter for 10. We've got Ukraine, or or indeed sort of all the former Soviet republics, or or that hardy perennial, the one that's always there or thereabouts, the Israel-Palestine question. Um, Daphna, Tony Blair being a Middle Eastern peace envoy, is that not... Is that not That's um, amazing. Yeah. Who thought? I mean, but you know what it's like? You have this old guy in the office and he's about to retire and you think, where are we going to put him? Well, he's not going to cause too much damage. Who was the genius <laughs> who went, yes, Israel, Palestine? This is not kicked sake. off yet. This was what? Well... This anti-Blair stuff is always simmering uh, at any sort of group of people. Simmering? That was like exploding. Let's just review what you just said. It's always simmering Simmering. wherever (laughs) people gather. (laughs) (laughs) You you said it with this tragedy. It's like breathing. These disgusting (laughs) people who gather and breathe and don't like Tony Blair. It's just a prevalent view that Tony Blair is a bad thing and the world needs to shed itself of this idea. The reason why he is the representative on the quartet on behalf of the Quartet to the Middle East, is because he brought peace to Northern Ireland, which was something that when I was growing up, and I look around this room and see people far older than I, would never... <laughs> would That's never, the four people you ever, haven't alienated already with your love for ever. Tony Blair. Oh, I'm a Blairite, I'm happy to alienate people. Otherwise, <laughs> I was doing Labour in the first place. The, the reality is, to bring peace to Northern Ireland took tremendous personal skill. It took not only uh, the skill of um, cooperation and and, uh, debate and all the rest of it, it took true vision and it took someone with unique energy and unique skills to do that. Tony Blair is the best qualified person in modern politics to try and bring peace uh, to the Middle East. No, but he, he took this kid off and he it started it in the first place. If he hadn't gone he, into Iraq, here. I think you're... Oh, hold on. So, hang on, this idea the world would be a better place no, if Saddam Hussein no, no, was no, still no, in charge no, of Iraq. No, no, you're putting words in my mouth. I wasn't going to say, I think if going into Iraq, who knows, I have no idea whether that was right or wrong. All I'm saying is that slightly tarnished... The, <laughs> the the Northern Ireland thing. Because well, well, you can't say, here, would you go off to the Middle East? Because you did marvellous things in Belfast with Mo Molum. <laughs> and he goes, well, I'm not sure I'm the right man for the job, because I had this little to-do in... Hold and, on. And they kind of go, no, well, no, no. Well, we on. can look, Bygones be bygones. No, 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 no. <laughs> you can... Well, it was, you know, it's meant to be a comedy night, so you can laugh and joke about it. The reality is, it wasn't just Iraq. He also went into Afghanistan. He yeah. also went into Kosovo. He also went into Sierra Leone. Loads all of, of those have yeah. to be seen through the prism of humanitarian wars. Where and oil. This, well, Kosovo and Sierra Leone. 
Well, no oil. In no, no, no. But I said all of them together. There's no oil in Kosovo. And there's no oil in Sierra Leone. This lazy liberal knee-jerk rubbish that somehow Blair was some sort of war for oil puppet for America is lazy. It's nonsense, and actually doesn't understand the modern world in which we live. But there are global forces now, partly radicalised them and partly uh, other things that Blair actually understands and has skills to try and bring peace to these areas. If you want to keep reading the Guardian and coming out with bullshit, fine. <laughs> if you want to try and understand uh, truly. War for oil nonsense. You can't explain Kosovo and Sierra Leone through that prism, so you have to reassess Blair's legacy. And, no, I and those two wars themselves Hang on. prove I, that I, you, Blair acted humanitarian. I, I, that I, was I, his driving force. I want to rephrase the original question. Um, where does the panel think World War III is most likely to break out? Syria, Ukraine, Israel, Palestine, or here? <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know what Tony Blair's doing in the Middle East, but says, unless it's oil or something. He's building up a lovely oh, tan. God. Exactly. <laughs> He looks great, to be fair. He does look very good. Look I great. Think we can all agree on that. He, looks, he could be on he Only Ways Essex, couldn't he? So he, he looks amazing. He could almost be on the Only Ways Essex. <laughs> he looks amazing. Rich. But proving his peacemongering by uh, the fact that he instigated four wars is a little bit weird, even in uh, my book. But I think this is the logic that led to his appointment in the first place. Uh, no. Daphna, is it a, I don't want to sound simplistic, so I don't, I don't want to say is it as simple as, as good and bad, but do you, as, as a, a former member of the is, is IDF, the Israeli Defence Force, do you, do you think that British troops should have been, or British government, British politicians should have intervened in Syria, Were you with David Cameron or Ed Miliband? I think it's hard to tell, but I think the experience in Iraq definitely eaten into the enthusiasm of it, and I also think it should be considered how many uh, Syrian civilians are going to die in this kind of intervention, because in Iraq, actually, the number of people who died in the intervention was bigger than the number of people who died in Syria so far. And uh, I think these things should be considered as well. So that wasn't, forgive me, a, 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 I mean, it was a bit of a fudge, that. It was a bit of a politician's answer. Do you, do you it was, think, wasn't it? Do you think we should, do, should we should? Should we have piled in, as, as, as Matt Ford contends? Sorry, I, I said piled <laughs> in, didn't I? Piled in, not Should we have intervened? Uh, you know what? I think, yes, at this point, maybe... It's time, but I think that these things should not be rushed into because we've seen what happened in Iraq. There was uh, an enthusiasm for it, and I think the uh, the consequences were disastrous. And uh, the thing is also, when are you going to run out once you've run out of steam? And this is what happened in Iraq. We, the numbers of people dying in Iraq every week now is absolutely horrendous. But There's been no solution to the political situation in Iraq, exactly. to the religious rift inside Iraq. Just came in, killed 100,000 people, and butted out. Well, Done the same in Palestine in 48, and the same in many other places. So I'm not that impressed by this kind of brilliant intervention that ends up in a situation that do, cannot be contained. Do we, do we have an, any understanding of young British men and women going to Syria to fight holy war? Does anybody understand what they're doing? I've got friends in the army uh, who, who at a time where there was... No, 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 I mean, I mean the, the, the civilians. I mean the, the jihadis, the so-called... Oh, what, so, what, you're talking about sort of homegrown terrorists who go well, over uh, there? Well, why do you say terrorists? Because David, terrorists, David Cameron oh. wanted to send troops, and then some people... There's a bloke who used to work in Specsavers who's there at the moment. <laughs> one, one hopes it hasn't all been a terrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> but, but why, why would a young British person like that? Do we, I, I, mean, I ask out of genuine ignorance. Does anybody have any? Well, idea? It's not so different from George Orwell and others going to fight in Spain in the thirties. So why, why, why is the why is the default term of choice then a sort of homegrown terrorist? Yeah, How can David Cameron's desire to send troops to Syria be noble, and and a bloke from Specsavers' desire to go to Syria and fight on the same side that David Cameron wanted to join be terrorism? I, I genuinely don't get no, that. Uh, well, I, but they're, they're normal kids. This is where the word radicalised is being used. They've been radicalised.
brutalized by the Syrian civil war. And you said, well, why, wasn't they, why don't they describe David Cameron as being radicalized? Let's have a slight change of pace now. Join me, ladies and gentlemen, in welcoming to the stage Mr. Nick Revel, please. Thank you. I'd love to get involved in that conversation. No, no, no. no. <laughs> anyway, uh, totally different topic. Um, comedians uh, of my generation and, and on the circuit often take cheap shots at the United States, uh, and I'm, I've been as guilty of that as, as, as anybody else. So for once, it's really great to have the opportunity this week to be completely positive um, about some aspects of American popular culture because last week Kentucky Fried Chicken brought back on sale their double down sandwich and if you haven't heard of the double down sandwich it's a bacon Swiss and jack cheese sandwich with a bun made not of bread but of two (laughs) deep fried chicken breasts Um, and and even in Scotland when I mentioned it it got that kind of shocking Response. I know, but, and it comes in at around 590 calories, so it's, it's taken a lot of flack from the health Nazis, but for the wrong reasons. The only reason to object to the double down is because it is stealing media attention from an even greater masterpiece of American culture, and I'm talking about the deep-fried Krispy Kreme donut bacon and double cheeseburger. That is a real thing, ladies and gentlemen, which... With a standard side order of salsa, sour cream, chili, and fries, comes in at roughly 4,889 <laughs> calories. Yeah, that's only a rough estimate. It, it, it's really difficult to know for sure the exact figure of the calories in these things because the statistics for it are collected by the same people who count civilian deaths from drone attacks in Pakistan. So, you know, it's hard to get it down exactly. But whatever the true figures, it's a lot. And I'm not knocking that. But, you know, no doubt, a lot of so-called comedians will be, though. You'll get, <laughs> no, you will. You, you'll get loads of cheap wisecracks like, oh, bloody hell, there must be sweatshops in Bangladesh turning out trousers for the Midwest with asses so big the kids making them are going, fuck me, my whole family could live in this. <laughs> or, no wonder America keeps, in, keep, America keeps invading places. They have to go abroad in significant numbers or all that weight concentrated in one part of the landmass would make the earth spin crooked off its axis. <laughs> Blimey, at this rate, if they keep eating like that, the sun will start orbiting the earth. Or, oh, well, that signals the end of the American TV dinner because if a whole family eats like that, they'll soon not be able to sit down at the same time on the same couch because their asses are so big. But you won't get any of those kind of cheap shots from me, people, because I say they should build a statue of the double down and put it up right next to the Statue of Liberty and they should carve a Krispy Kreme donut burger into Mount Rushmore immediately while there's still stonemasons in the US light enough to be held in a hoist. <laughs> because I tell you, when the founding fathers wrote the Constitution, they conceived of a country which would be a haven where the world's poor and oppressed would have basic rights and the sheer physical space for each individual human spirit to flourish in freedom and equality once the genocide of the indigenous population had been taken care of. A land whose citizens could in liberty devote their lives to the pursuit of happiness. And what better expression of those noble principles of the Enlightenment than to enjoy all the bounties of 
God's good earth, deep fried and free of any time-consuming distractions like cutlery or plates. (laughs) That was the kind of vision that sustained Washington and his revolutionary army through the long, cruel winter at Valley Forge. Those were the dreams that Lincoln's regiments gave their lives for at Gettysburg. That's what fueled the hope that gave millions of Europe's dispossessed the courage to endure stormy oceans and innumerable hardships and dangers to forge a better life in a brave new world. The idea that someday their descendants would be able to eat more calories in one go (laughs) than a North Korean town sees in a month and call it a snack. If Jesus had had access to the deep-fried Krispy Kreme donut burger, brothers and sisters, there would be no religious strife in this world because he would still be alive today, heart surgery permitting, because there would not have been a donkey in all of the Holy Land strong enough to carry him into Jerusalem, nor wood strong enough to make a cross that could bear his weight. And that means no one would be blaming the Jews for killing him and the whole world would be united in peace and love and can gang up on the Muslims just like Tony Blair wants us to. You bastard. What better way, brothers and sisters, to build a world where the lion and the lamb will truly finally lay down together in peace and love than to feed them food that makes them too fat to be able to get up. Don't let the cynics win, brothers and sisters. <laughs> Don't let them deceive you. The deep-fried Krispy Kreme donut bacon and double cheeseburger is nothing less than freedom herself in a bun. Thank you. Well done. Nick Revel, ladies and gentlemen. Did you see the story in the mail on Sunday last that week? cunt. Who... <laughs> Well, he was. No, he clarified. Well, no, he really is a cunt. You don't need to clarify. They might not know the story. Clarify the story. The story was that the the Mail on Sunday was absolutely apoplectic because they sent a reporter to a food bank and he was not treated like a lying scumbag, despite the fact that he lied like a scumbag. They couldn't believe it. He said, I've got hungry children, I've got a wife who's going to leave me, I've lost my job. And they actually gave him, the the, the bastards gave him some food. Yeah. And the Which he then went, went off and had photos taken with. With and, his and food. With his food, going, this is an outrage. I went in and said I was hungry and they fed me. The- <laughs> <laughs> so you've got this weird juxtaposition of, of epic amounts of food being eaten by poor people and also now in this country, people being so poor that they can't eat any food at all. I, I, I'm sort of trying to make so sense of it. They accuse them of binging on food banks? What's the- no, there's, the claim is that food banks don't ask enough questions. They don't humiliate you enough when you go in there. But equally, you know, playing no. devil's advocate, yeah. anything that uh, is a service for people that are deserving uh, is, you know, deserving of scrutiny. That's what they say. <laughs> public money. I'm not defending the anyone necessarily, but if it's public money or even if it's charitable money... These things deserve to be scrutinised. I'm not defending the piece no, necessarily, but, in the piece, but he to then, say that, oh, because it's a food bank, it doesn't deserve No, 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 but in the piece, he then took ridiculous. this attitude that it was all too easy, and the whole right. p- implication behind it was was that there isn't a problem with uh, hunger in this country, and actually all it is is a way of people to go, and, with a yeah. few well-chosen lies, you can go and top up your weekly shop, another, you know, then you nip back to Waitrose. That was the whole essence of the piece, <laughs> yeah. that actually Which this, is isn't, just this isn't required. Which is the weirdest impulse, Which is the to, to see the existence of food banks on an epic unprecedented scale they existed under labor it's, it's just yeah. it's the scale of them that is new yeah. and to think people must be swinging the lead I, I, people must be people must be making it up they might so i can't imagine what would have to exist between your ears to see the food banks opening all over the country and think to yourself oh, huh, yeah yeah 
hungry my ass. They're going to, they're going to fill in their boots. What was it Duncan Smith said? We've got food banks. People use food banks because they're there. People use food banks because they're there. They wouldn't use them if they weren't. You know what? There. He's got a point. Oh Jesus yeah, Christ, yeah. Matt! Is there no? Is, is, that, is that the new Christian ethics that the Prime Minister was talking about? Yes. Yeah. Yes. He he would argue yeah. it was a great sign of generosity and Christian spirit to feed the poor because they're too poor to feed themselves well, in a country Christ where millionaires yeah. are getting richer every year. Exactly. Well, hold on. Show me your certificate of poorness. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Millionaires are getting richer. The problem is with this narrative, this, and I'm a Labour supporter and always will be. And you we'll keep never, saying that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you can pigeonhole and you can sort of have these knee-jerk liberal reactions yeah. where actually you ignore where the real debates are. If you don't understand why these debates happen and why the Daily Mail writes the sort of articles they write, if you don't understand why YouTube is flourishing, keep booing people like me, and keep making silly little comments like that because you will never understand the modern world in which you exist. No one's the reason you. why Ian Duncan Smith makes this point is because he understands benefit culture more than most left-wing people. And I grew up in a single-parent family on benefits. I lived in these communities and grew up in it and knew what the real fear of never being able to have food was, truly. And without being pandered to by people far more wealthy than me and being told what poverty is like, I lived it and I broke free from it. The reality is there are some people in the community that I lived in who actually could work, could choose to work, were far more talented than the livelihood they choose to live was. There are undercurrents in this country that the liberal left, predominantly middle class, choose to ignore because they think it's prejudicial to hold these opinions. The country will continue to be held back if you make demons out of people like me. No one's making That's a demon out of you. No, no one's making a demon out of you. But two and a half million people unemployed in this country. At the last two point two million. Was, at the last count, it was half a million job vacancies. So yeah. I mean, that's that's basic mathematics. It doesn't matter where you grew up or how hungry you were. No, half a million equally, into two point two million. Equally, Hang on, mate. You've had your fun. The, let me no, have, let me the have real a word. Stat, the real so, stat. so the problem is this, right? There are people on benefits who probably should be doing something else. There are also a hell of a lot of people on benefits, I would argue the majority, who are there because they need help. They are using right. it as a safety net. How do, you, how, do you, how do you, it's a question for you, yeah. how do you sustain the uh, efficiency of the safety net? How do you sustain that while you're punishing the people who use it as a trampoline? Well, so how do you make sure people who need it still get it while you've got families queuing up at food banks to be given the, the, the fucking leavings from the table of the middle-class people that you're deriding? Well, the reason uh, that I'm Labour and that I'm not a Tory is because I think you can't have a government that barks at people for being unemployed when it's not... That's not what I asked you, When it's not creating enough jobs. That's not what I asked so, you. How do you target these problems without also penalising and punishing the people who are not part of the problem but who are availing themselves of one of the finest institutions created by humans humankind in the last hundred years, namely the British welfare state. So that just as a few people taking the piss, there's a few people taking the piss, how do you, how do you deal with them without... Job, ca- without well, it's, it's job creation is the, is the ultimate answer. The real stat on unemployment actually isn't the 2.2 million and the 0.5. The real stat was during the boom years was a million jobs vacant and a million people on the dole. That was the real stat. In 1999 and 2000, we had a million jobs vacant and a million people on the dole before the economic crash. Bloody Tony Blair. A million people. <laughs> but these are but these are undercurrents of the British economy that the liberal left does not have the courage to so this liberal left you keep talking true, about? Because, because I just don't, don't think you should go to a food yes. bank and try and prove that everybody using it is a liar, which is the male's agenda. Exactly. I don't agree with the male. But all I'm saying, I'm playing devil's advocate to some extent, 
These I, uh, things deserve to be scrutinised. I, I think I'd like to congratulate myself on maintaining my impartial balance as the presenter, <laughs> as the presenter of this evening's uh, presenter of this evening's entertainment. Well done. Um, um, Matt Ford and I are going to go and share a double down crispy cream <laughs> during, during the interval. After which, I stress again that we would really like you to get involved in setting the agenda for the second half. So no, we really would. So please. You, so <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> And if you'd like to focus on maybe the Great British Bake Off or <laughs> sewing bees or what you did over Easter weekend, that would be smashing. That would be the best thing. Do you know what? This is the point in proceedings where usually I rifle through your suggestions with a slightly sneery expression on my face and thank you for, for messing up the whole of the second half of the show. But we, we are, for the very first time ever, inundated with, with quality contributions. I'm not sure we know what to do with them, frankly. <laughs> Normally just sort of take the piss and throw them all away, but there's some... There's some br I, I object to being lectured to by a Blairite who does not listen to anyone and lets none of the other members of the panel express an opinion without calling them names. That, um... <laughs> That is, that is almost word for word an email I get into my radio studio on an almost daily basis. So it's nice to have some competition, I have to say. Uh, let's, 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 what should we do first? Let's get Stephen Gribbin back. Welcome back, Stephen Gribbin. Hello. Uh, thanks very much for um, having me back. This song is uh, very uh, apposite. Uh, because it's about food as well. Uh, the average Briton uh, in this country consumes 36 kilograms of sugar per year. Uh, that's about um, 70 bags of sugar or one episode of The One Show. Um, there is actually a lobby group uh, called Action for Sugar. Uh, they said they would do a lot more campaigning, but uh, they just don't seem to have the energy. Um, this is a true, true story. Uh, this is a, about the addiction to sugar. It's a kind of a druggy... Lou Reed stroke Velvet Underground song about being addicted to sugar. It's called, I want some sugar, give him some sugar, I really need some sugar, give us it now. Um, and for anyone who's addicted to sugar, like we all are, people said it's more addictive than crack, and it is. This goes like this, this one's called Sugar. I'm waiting for my man He's got a bag of Tate and Lyle in his hand I need my fix, I'm going out of my mind I don't care if it was unrefined Just give me sugar Sweet, sweet sugar I'm mainlining sucrose, I really want to score Can't come a moment too soon It's just like using heroin, baby Way you need a fucking big spoon. Give me sugar. Sweet, sweet sugar. I need it now, it's more addictive than crack. I got a craving for some sugary snacks. Got the sugar rush, I'm so elated. I dropped a cube and it was granulated. Sweet, sweet sugar. Sugar is more addictive than sex. It plays havoc with my glycemic index. Piss off, that was a good rhyme. <laughs> well, I don't discriminate. I love white or brown because a spoonful of sugar helps your life expectancy go down. 
sweet, sweet sugar. And if we run out of the good stuff, that's not a disaster. I'll raid the kitchen cupboards, shit, I'll even take caster. And I said to my dealer, I'm gonna be beating you if I find you've cut this shit with sweetener. Can't go on a bender with splendor. Biscuits and sweeties. Mm, I've got type 2 diabetes. Give me sugar. Just give me some sugar. Just give me sweet sugar. Sugar. Steve Gribbin, ladies and gentlemen. Steve Gribbin. Thank you, Steve. There's a drop in the UK crime rate, and it seems to be connected to a drop in drinking. How do the panels? Criminal activities and drinking patterns correlate. Uh, Don, 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 actually, Don, I have to tell you, people in the audience are very keen to hear more from you this half, so no pressure. <laughs> how, how does your alcohol intake affect your criminality? Well, the thing is, I, I don't drink that much, but the weird thing is, I've been stopped and searched about six or seven times. So not, it's not that weird, Don. <laughs> it's not that weird. No, it actually isn't that weird. So, but being dyspraxic means it does help me find my keys at the end of the day. So, <laughs> so uh, but... Um, no, I don't drink, but people always think I'm up to something. It's that Asian face. I don't know. <laughs> Unfortunately, it does happen, so... It, it's, uh, but you've never... I mean, they've never found anything when they search you. Not yet. Except your keys. <laughs> <laughs> Daphne, do you find you're more likely to break the law when you've had a few? No. Uh, I'm likely to break the law at any time. I'm a lawyer by my uh, background. Also, you've squeezed a lot in, haven't you? So you're in the Israeli Defence Force. You're the news editor of, a, of an Israeli newspaper. You've been a lawyer... And, and, and you can kill the a man with your criminal. and you can kill a man with your bare hand. She claims Sorry. benefits as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> Matt yes. Ford, alcohol and violence. Mate, mate, I think I'm living proof that a drink makes me an absolute prick. And the <laughs> <laughs> I think the reason uh, it's not to do with drink; it's just increasing poverty means that people haven't got the energy to fight anymore. So <laughs> that's why I couldn't be asked to uh, um, discuss in the first half. I didn't have the energy. So. <laughs> I'm just tired. <laughs> the reason why we've never really had a revolution in this country, if you don't include the Civil War, is because uh, working class... And this is one of the few things that does make me left-wing. Working class people uh, have always been kept on the breadline, and it was a, a famous uh, writer called Cobbett who said, I defy you to agitate a man on a full stomach. The yeah. reality is that British people have actually never been poor enough to revolt. No, the reason why we're not in a revolution, because uh, we've got mortgages, so we have to keep paying them. <laughs> I haven't. But most people have got mortgages, so they can't afford to go on a revolution because uh, Margaret Thatcher decimated all the council housing in this country. So I'm not sure no that goes back to the 18th century. Oh, no, yeah. no, it does. It does. Probably I not. Think, I don't think I like Marx it. came to Britain in the 19th century and went, oh, I thought it was going to work, but they've all got fucking mortgages. <laughs> <laughs> There's an Abbey National on every corner. <laughs> Won't say Tender. <laughs> Don, Don's history might be a bit shaky, but that is, <laughs> that is the first... You see my laptop, then? <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time I've understood what they mean when they say stakeholder. So, because you are a stakeholder, you've got some money, you've got a mortgage, you've got, then you're less likely to object to the status quo or the government because you'll be actually risking something that you think you own. Yeah, you're in a, you've become a slave to the wage. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> Right on. <laughs> Which is why we do this show, because there's no wage to be a slave to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> pleasure. Maybe some more sugar in the food banks. 
Oh, let's steer away from the food bank. <laughs> <laughs> the Guardian said yesterday, oh, that's how to, how to lose Matt Ford straight away. <laughs> the the, I used to read it. The Guardian said yesterday, UKIP supporters' concerns should be engaged with, not merely disapproved of. Um, how do you do that without pandering to prejudice? And Patricia asks, Farage has yet to announce any policies except one. What do you think he's going to come up with? We'll, we'll begin, we'll do both of these. They're brilliant questions, thank you. Um, don't be surprised if you hear them on LBC tomorrow from 10 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> text, text, tweet, or call in with your answers. Um, and in fact, if, if any of you come up with any brilliant answers, don't be surprised if you hear them being passed <laughs> off as all my, all my own work as well. But this, this notion, uh, which t- tallies with my, find, my sort of feelings recently, that if, if people are angry and, a bit, and, and frightened, calling them racist will not make them less angry or frightened. I think that was the point of the Guardian editorial, saying you, you have to engage with their concerns, not merely disapprove of them. Can you do that, um, Don, without pandering to the prejudice? You don't have to scratch the surface to, to find prejudice in UKIP. You just have to lick it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. My Indian parents actually um, uh, support UKIP yeah. because... Uh, because they just sit at home and claim benefits. Because <laughs> they want the British jobs to go to the British workers. So. <laughs> Nick Griffin accused UKIP today of, of, of nicking their policies, but, but this is the beauty of it. But, but the thing is, Farage doesn't really mean it. And we did in the BNP. And, and you're supposed to go, oh, poor old Nick. Jesus, imagine having your act nicked by, <laughs> Nigel, by Nigel Farage. But can, can, I mean, so you've got somebody who thinks that, that, that the figures are much, much higher than they really are, thinks that the problem is much, much greater than they really are, and you tell them this, but you can't really tell them that without somehow making them feel like you're calling them a racist. Uh, I don't know, but I think, well, personally, my view on UKIP is that I think they're just vile, really, because uh, about the figures on immigration and stuff like that, because... Uh, what, uh, because they're just scaremongering, because at the end of the day, uh, there's immigrants can work side by side with British people. There's enough money to support both of us to help the increase in ageing population. So, uh, so uh, I think what they're doing is a lot of scaremongering, and even if I answered the question properly, but I don't think they're the full Well, no, th- but that's the problem, because you, you use the word vile, so you have just disapproved of them. How do you address their Sorry, concerns kid. without using words like vile or pandering to, to the prejudice? I don't think you can. I think well, the media's I'll failed utterly. I'll tell you how you do it. Hang on, let, 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 I want a bit more from Don. <laughs> I just want to clarify as well that when you said, you said that we need more people to look after the ageing population, not the Asian population. <laughs> <laughs> well, my parents fit both demographics, so... <laughs> So perfect, you know? But, but if you think that the, these ideas are vital, the people expounding the ideas might deserve all of the epithets and criticisms and descriptions, but not the people believing them. That's two very different things. I don't know. It's just... Uh, I, well, you've got... I mean, if you call them vile, you're playing into their hands, sort of. Yeah. But I just think... I think the press has become too right-wing. and I'm not a left-wing myself. I, I'm a mixture of both. But I, I just think uh, no-one's given a real debate on it about immigration. I don't... I agree. I'm not a big fan of European Union, but immigration-wise... No one's given a real debate on it and a real figure. That there is actually enough money to feed, clothes and house everyone, if that's not answering the question. But, you know, like the top 1%, there is enough money. So we can exist together. And I think... Without merely disapproving of them, how, how do you engage with the concerns without, A, pandering to the prejudice, or, B, making the problem worse? Well, firstly, you tell the truth about immigration uh, on both sides. And the problem we had 
and even though I'm a massive fan of him, Tony Blair, was that he allowed a significant amount of immigration into this country, but didn't communicate. And yeah. oddly, it was a paradox for someone who was a phenomenal communicator of domestic policy, didn't ever have the guts to take on the right wing in this country and yeah. say, we're allowing immigration into this country because actually our multiculturalism is our gr- one of our greatest strengths. And it's something that underpins not just our public services, but the entrepreneurial spirit that makes Britain great. I completely agree with we you. Al- so I'm terrified. <laughs> I'm terrified of what's coming next. <laughs> yeah. so We've been here before. So you had, you had with... Labour, a government that allowed significant uh, immigration into this country but never had the guts to defend it. And the problem you had with that was that people's communities changed in some areas in front of their eyes. And Gillian Duffy was one of those people that saw European immigration happen in her community and when she asked a Labour Prime Minister about it, she got called a bigot. Now that was an absolute disgrace. You cannot allow on one hand a policy to happen as a result of direct decisions being taken by the people at the top and not have the guts to stand by it. Immigration in this country was something that Labour championed, failed to defend, and as a result, all of us allowed a vacuum in which UKIP could flourish. We tried to paint William Hague as a racist in 2001 when he said save the pound. Now we know what real right-wing politics looks like and we can't deal with it because we forced them out and further out right. Unless you allow people to talk openly and maturely about immigration, even in their clumsy language, you will not have a mature debate about it. Painting anyone who has a concern, a legitimate concern about the effects in their area or the effect on their job, or just a general concern, even if there are no immigrants in their area. It's something we all have a right to have an opinion on. What motivated BNP voters, partly what motivated Lib Dem voters, and now what motivates UKIP, is a desire to stick two fingers up to the establishment for a variety of reasons. But UKIP, UKIP said today they were welcoming respectable former BNP voters into their fold. In all fascist evolutions, in all, every single fascist evolution there's a point at which it moves from i'm not racist but mm. to what's wrong with being racist and it's it's happening this week in british politics well is it well yes lenny henry go back to a black country oh yeah africans why don't you all kill yourselves and oh, he's in the fucking advert matt he's in yep. the advert they had oh, no, to no, find no, no, five I... people five people with a clean past and they couldn't no i agree with that i just the general, irish actor in an anti-immigration basis. advert I mean, well, they're not only bigoted, they're grossly incompetent. And a protest is a protest. If you're yeah. going to make an anti-immigration advert, don't put an immigrant in it. If you're going to make, <laughs> yeah, exactly. if you're going to make speeches about immigrants and uh, wives working for politicians, don't put your immigrant wife on the fucking payroll when you're a politician. And so this is the frustration, I think, in the question is, this should just be bleeding obvious. I Even if you're it. worried about immigration, don't let these people any... I wouldn't let them babysit, let alone <laughs> hold public office. And, and it's frustrating. I'd rather let as them a, hold public office than and babysit. As a Jew, <laughs> I mean, today is the Holocaust Memorial Day in Israel. As an immigrant, as a Jew, I can say we prefer the inefficient racist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I don't think anyone's going to improve on that line. I'd like you to join me in thanking Stephen Gribbin for his wonderful music, Alistair Barry and Nick Revel, and our panel this evening, Chris Neal, Matt Ford, um, Don Biswas and Daphne Barham. I'm James O'Brien. This is no pressure to be funny. Thank you very much and good night. <laughs>